Let's pray. Father God, um, I just pray that as we look at Ephesians 4, it would be your words, Lord, that come to the, to the top, Lord, and that we see what you want us to see as members of the Church of Cape May County. I pray, God, that we would have your Spirit speak to us in terms of what we need to repent of or we need to act on. And so, Lord, we just trust that you are good and that you are going to work through feeble vessels. In your name, amen. This is something that I've been thinking about probably since about March. Um, and I actually remember when I wrote down a bunch of thoughts and I sent them to Breton, it was one of those things where I just woke up and this was on my heart. Um, what I've noticed is that there's a pattern in the church and there's a pattern in our country over the last few generations. It's probably been going on a whole lot longer, actually. And what that is, is we see in Ephesians 4, it talks about apostles and prophets, evangelists and shepherds and teachers. And we see that apostolic, prophetic, evangelistic type people have increasingly distanced themselves from shepherds and teachers within the body of Christ. Um, in some instances, we've actually seen those giftings band together to form what we would call parachurch organizations, mission organizations, um, for example. In other instances, I think that it's safe to say that we've actually seen entire denominations that are more apostolic in leaning, or entire networks that are more evangelistic in leaning, or that are more teacher-oriented. And so we've essentially branded these things as personality and gifting types, and then we divide them up among denominations or agencies or churches even within a county. And I think that this splintering has resulted in the fact that apostolic prophets evangelists um, use their gifts in a judgment-free zone by operating together. And we see that God has used this. If you're look, thinking, trying to think of a real-life example of this, we can think of that there are more evangelistic-leaning churches, like, for example, the Seeker Movement, that that is driven by evangelists more than it's driven by teachers, for example, or shepherds, because how can you shepherd 40,000 people? And so because the evangelism is a pattern that is near and dear to their heart, this has started an entire movement, but it's not looking at the complete picture of, of apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers. Similarly, shepherds and teachers who are the guardians and the caregivers of the people of God have created an environment where people are nurtured, people are protected, people are fed, but they're not always mobilized. Why? Well, because the apostles, prophets, and evangelists have left the building. So by nature of personality and gifting, rather than working together to accomplish the global task that is given to the church, shepherds and teachers have inadvertently pushed apostles, prophets, evangelists right out of the building. And so, like I said, what we have today is a body that is by and large divided. Shepherds and teachers who are called to serve and protect the body stand cemented in place, ready to protect the sheep at all cost. And the apes, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, have left the building wanting to see progress, wanting to see movement, wanting to see action, and frankly, they grew tired of waiting. And so what we see is that we are easily divided into flavors of ministry and personality. But the problem is that at the core of this, the issue is sin, that we need all of our apostolic, prophetic, evangelist, shepherd, teacher, brothers and sisters to move the gospel forward together. And as we look at Ephesians 4, we need that this is the only way we actually build up towards maturity. So in Ephesians, this is, I'm going to go through this verse by verse. 
Ephesians 4.1, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. We need to remember that our calling is a noble calling. We are tasked to spread the kingdom of God. We have no time for infighting. And in the war of the kingdom, frankly, we need all hands on deck, not just medics or special forces. Verse 2, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. If we will see any restitution and reconciliation among churches, among personalities, among leaders, among anyone within the body of Christ, the bottom line is we have to begin with a posture of humility. Be completely humble and gentle. Anyone who's been married any number of years knows that it's often the person who is willing to humble him or herself first that wins the fight. Because it isn't about winning the fight at all, it's about being reconciled at the end of the day. And the same thing is true as we think about churches co-laboring together despite their differences in theology, methodology, philosophy. Verse 3 to 5, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The reality is we do not begin from a place of division. We begin from being bound and shackled by the peace that has been purchased, secured, and promised in the Holy Spirit. And as Paul has said elsewhere in 1 Corinthians, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, and the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. And on the contrary, those parts of the body that are weaker are indispensable, 12, 21 to 22. See, we are all parts of one body, and the body only functions fully and efficiently when it is functioning in unison and humble submission one to another. The spinal column serves the nervous system. It serves the nervous system. The ligaments serve the muscular system. Only together does the body actually work as designed. Similarly, the spirit of Christ is one spirit, Paul says here. Jesus was, as we see, the embodiment of the full range of these apest giftings. He was the apostle, which literally in the Greek is just the one sent. He is the one sent from the Father. He is the prophet. He is the prophet who proclaims the word and leads his people out of slavery into freedom. He is the evangelist. Actually, he is the good news. He is the author of truth, the embodiment of the good news. Jesus is the chief shepherd who leads, feeds, guards, and keeps and Jesus is the teacher because he himself is the word of the Father spoken to us, bringing order out of chaos, both in Genesis 1 as well as in John 1. You see, our very nomenclature that we may be accustomed to in our own churches, she has an apostolic spirit or he has a shepherd's heart, exemplifies the division that we are sowing and reaping. Is Christ divided? That's what Paul questions us. By no means. Because there's one spirit called by many names, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of God, the breath of the spirit of life, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, the comforter, the spirit of truth, the spirit of Christ. And so within the Holy Spirit, we see all of these different giftings and all of these different personalities, if you will, which we have now cut apart and divided into different congregations based upon preference. Within these names, we see the full spread of these gifts. We are one. We go together. 
The idea of a church named Revolve is not a biblical concept. Paul wrote to the church in Galatia, and he said, pass this to the church in Heropolis, Laodicea, and Colossae, because they were all part of one church. But to each one of us, verse 7, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and he gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Gifts of grace are just that, gifts, unmerited favor given by God and apportioned by Jesus. And he gave these gifts not indiscriminately, but intentionally as he saw fit to serve his bride, the church. They're not given based upon merit or charisma or academic aptitude or any human condition. Verse 11 and 12. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Why? To equip his people for works of service. Not to do the works of service, which is our entire American church model, by the way. God, of course, has given pastors to do the work, right? No. God has given apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers to equip his people for works of service. See, the full range of these gifts from apostle through teacher have been given for the purpose of equipping his people for the works of service. And as we see in the following verse in a moment here, that service is to mature the body at large, not just the ecclesia that we represent individually. It's a both and situation. Each of these gifts is an equipping gift. We don't think of the evangelist gifting as an equipping gift, but according to Paul in Ephesians 4, it is. How far we have fallen when we believe that the only equipping gift in the church is that of teacher. And then we wonder why we don't have another generation of missionaries. Because the only equipping gift we've ever modeled is pulpit ministry. Who will equip the next generation of apostolic missionaries and pioneers, of bold prophets who preach against the culture with exhortation, or fruitful evangelists if all of the apostolic evangelists have left because they didn't feel welcome within the shepherd teaching community? Who will challenge the young shepherds and teachers to look beyond the horizon of their own building to the ends of the earth if the older shepherds and teachers have run those apostolically gifted people right out of the building or into other congregations? Do you see the danger that we face when we have congregations that are entirely just like us? Is it easier that way? Yes, and it's a death sentence. We need one another. It is only together that we can truly equip God's people for the work of the ministry and mobilize them for the task at hand of the Great Commission. Are you guys tracking with me? So that the body of Christ, verse 12 continued, to equip his people so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. When we function together, we see the manifestation of maturity. That's what Paul is saying. And what does maturity look like according to Ephesians 4? 
unity. That's what maturity looks like. And so in other words, if we do not know how to bear with one another in love because we keep a skeleton full of closets, Paul would say, you're immature. You're acting like a child, like a child whose toy got broken by a neighbor. That's not maturity. And that definitely won't lead to unity because unity is impossible without maturity. The same as conflict resolution is impossible without humility. Pride will impede the progress of unity at every corner. And how crucial this unity is, for it is in our unity that we will attain the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, which is what Paul argues. What is that? What is the fullness of Christ? It's the glory of God covering the world as the water covers the sea. It's the desired end of our global task. It's impossible without unity. Unity is impossible without maturity. Maturity is impossible without equipping. Equipping is impossible without co-laboring. And co-laboring is impossible without humility. And so it all begins there. Do you see the spiral of destruction and necrosis that we have become trapped within? Our disunity breeds disunity because the flesh, as Jesus says in John 3, 6, is incapable of producing that which is spiritual. I think that when we fight about our organizations and our institutions and our denominations, and all of our theological leanings which are outside the realm of orthodoxy or focused on the gospel, as Breton said, we aren't actually benefiting anyone. We're just drawing division. That's why Paul says we need to bear with one another. The truth is that teachers need to bear with prophets because they are too different in their personality. And evangelists who just want to go out and see people saved need to bear with shepherds who seem like they never want to leave. This is why Paul and Barnabas split over John Mark. It's a very real tension. But my theory is that so many of our churches have actually gathered around personalities and preferences as opposed to geographic locales of the gospel going forth, which is not what we see in the scriptures. Verse 14, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves blown here and there by every wind of teaching. That's why we need the teachers. And by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming, instead speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. And what a day that will be. And it will be the day because Jesus himself is building the church and neither the gates of hell nor the failure of his people will stand against it. And in that place of humility and unity and maturity, there will be a stable force, a rope of many strands that can withstand whatever hell throws at it. And because of our oneness and co-laboring within the one spirit, we won't be deceived by one teaching or the next. The shepherds will correct the prophets. The apostles will spur on the teachers. The teachers will make sure that we build towards maturity. 
And this will, Paul says, be accomplished by speaking truth in Trinitarian love, the spirit of truth speaking through our mouths with the love of the Trinity as we are one, as he is one. Verse 16, from him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. As I read this verse, I picture a body that's being formed slowly, part by part, as it stretches, and all of the sinews start pulling towards the head. It is built with love. And as the human body is incredibly complex enough to baffle scientists, the interworking of the body of Christ is equally complex. But as our Trinitarian God mutually serves and submits out of love within the Godhead, the body of Christ is built up through mutual submission to one another. Verse 17, so I tell you this, insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity. They are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned. When you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. I fully believe that the way we are currently behaving, not just in Cape May County, but in New Jersey, in the United States, is modeled after the way the world lives and functions and not modeled after what Christ would desire. So many churches are so bent on building their empire, they forget that we're designed to build his kingdom. The world does not pursue humility, it pursues Let us be the best, let us be the biggest, let us be the most famous. The world does not pursue submission. Instead, our megachurch models, what they say is you exist as the people to promote me as the pastor. It's the very opposite of what Christ said leadership should look like. The world does not promote love or forgiveness or reconciliation or collaboration because collaboration means Leo might succeed while I do not. And heaven forbid. That's the way the world thinks. The worldly man does not desire for someone to succeed more than himself. But we are not of the world any longer. We are new. And we must consider the old man dead and walk in newness of life. Verse 25, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up. According to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, and every other form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to each other, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. 
Paul's final words in Ephesians 4 show us what we are called to do. Speak truthfully to one another. Do not sin in our anger. Do not allow past wounds to cloud our current way of thinking. To comment on what Breton said about how this county has a history. Instead, we abandon such rage even before we go to sleep. If we do not, the devil himself will scale our self-righteous tower of condescension one foothold at a time until he ransacks our very heart and soul. We must toss aside all bitterness from wounds other believers have caused us, either intentionally or unintentionally. We must abandon all anger because Christ commands us to. We must let go of infighting because it is a form of the flesh. Instead, we look to one another as people who are gifted differently, as we have a diverse body with personalities, and truth be told, some personalities simply need to bear with one another or put up with one another in love. So we look to one another as apostolic, prophet, prophetic, evangelist, shepherds, and teachers, and with kindness we say, I have wounded you. I have spoken harshly about you. I have harbored bitterness towards you. But let us forgive one another, love one another well, because Christ is not divided. See, the church is divided because we are divided. And a divided front will not see success. We have forsaken the kingdom by gathering into fiefdoms populated with people exactly like us. And without the plurality of people, personalities, and giftings, there is no one to challenge us in our blind spots or rebuke us in our fleshly propensities towards sin. We need one another. This is both how we will be mobilized and how we will also find health. Somehow we must come to the point where we realize we need each other. As a personal anecdote, I'll end it this way. When we first planted Revolve 10 years ago, I was 29, 29 years old. I think it's safe to say when you're 29 years old, you have no idea what you're doing. There wasn't a single man in this county who said, listen, my 29-year-old young man, I want you to succeed. Let me help you so you don't make the same mistakes I did. Instead, we were viewed as competition, slandered as a cult, and many other things. This is not the way the body of Christ was ever meant to function. We need each other, and we are all on the same team. And sometimes that looks like bearing with one another in love, the same way we have to bear with people who are challenging or our own teenagers because we are all growing in maturity and we need one another.